This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am. Not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Katoros, Brandy, Catherine, Sam, Freddie, Linda, Janice, Hammer, Katarina, Robert, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, Two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, David, John, and my girl Judy. Thank you so much. You are, as always, very appreciated. And thank you to my other patrons as well. You know who you are. So, since I got an overwhelming yes, please give us more science, we can sprinkle these into the podcast lineup from time to time. Our last one was met with rave reviews and feedback, and I want to say thank you so much for that. So in the first one, we discussed genetics and environment, the age-old debate of nature versus nurture. Now I want to talk about the brain of the psychopathic killer and differences that we often see there. So we're going to start with an article written by University of Chicago's Jack Wang, where he stated, quote, brain scans of incarcerated men reveal reduced gray matter in homicide offenders, unquote. It is true that, for the most part, the brains of murderers do look different when compared to those people who are convicted of other crimes not involving murder. And those differences appear to be how they process empathy and morality differently. Research completed by a leading neuroscientist did find that after examining the brain scans of over 800 men in prison, Individuals who had committed or attempted to commit murder had reduced gray matter when compared to those involved in other offenses. And for those that might not know, there are two different types of matter in the brain, gray and white. Gray is a major component of the central nervous system and is distinguished from white matter in that it contains numerous cell bodies and relatively few myelinated axons. Gray matter is actually present in the brain, the brain stem, the cerebellum, which coordinates the timing of muscles and other parts of the body for fluid walking, motor learning, etc. And also it's found throughout the spinal cord. 
Basically, gray matter regions of the brain involve muscle control and sensory perception. So this includes all of the biggies, right? Seeing, hearing, memory, emotions, speech, decision-making, and self-control. Now, other things can cause the reduction of gray matter, such as high alcohol consumption, long-term cannabis use, in particular with the hippocampus, amygdala, medial temporal cortex, and the prefrontal cortex. Chronic video game playing has been reported to reduce gray matter in the hippocampus and, of course, the predictable brain changes during adolescence and hormone fluctuations affect gray matter. Now, with regards to the brain scans of the violent, incarcerated men, the reduction in gray matter was especially apparent in the regions of the brain associated with emotional processing, behavioral control, and social cognition. More gray matter means more ease of making computations and processing information, be it emotional information they would use to feel empathy for others or information used to control behavior and the ability to control your behaviors and suppress negative impulses. Brain scans of what most would deem normal individuals show a lot of activity in the regions one would expect, especially in the prefrontal cortex. The scans for murderers predictably showed much less activity in the prefrontal cortex. So let's look at that. Now the prefrontal cortex is actually located kind of behind your forehead. There are subsections of that area, but we're going to keep it simple. Now, according to the science of psychotherapy.com, this brain region has been implicated in planning complex cognitive behavior, personality expression, decision-making, and moderating social behavior. The basic activity of this brain region is considered to be the organization and orchestration of thoughts and actions in accordance with our internal goals. In fact, the most typical psychological term for functions carried out by the prefrontal cortex area is the executive function. This region in humans occupies a far larger percentage of the brain than any other animal, fun fact. Another fun fact, the left and right sides of the prefrontal cortex become more interconnected with consistent aerobic exercise. So this executive function is related to the ability to differentiate between conflicting thoughts, determining whether things are good or bad, better or best, same or different, and visualizing or conceptualizing the future consequences of current activities, working towards specific goals, predicting outcomes and expectations based on your actions. It also involves controlling oneself socially. The prefrontal cortex supports learning the accepted rules and so on. Now there has also been observed a reduction in gray matter, as in volume and interconnections, in the frontal lobes and other related brain regions as seen in people with diagnosed mental disorders, people subjected to repeated and intense stress, sociopaths, people who are incarcerated, and as I said before, daily and long-term use of cannabis, and then oddly those affected by lead poisoning. But looking at different ways the prefrontal cortex can be different, 
there are a few. What if it's just underdeveloped? To put it simply, if it is less active or underdeveloped, then these people have less control over their social behavior and automatically follow impulses more. When this occurs, the amygdala residing deep in the brain then becomes extra active, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. The development of the human brain is, of course, very immature at birth, but after birth, the cerebral cortex experiences a massive expansion of neurotransmitter release sites and connections, followed then by an extended pruning period. This entire process reaches its peak in the visual and auditory cortex within a few months after birth. Then the increase in synaptic connections occurs more slowly in the prefrontal cortex. In fact, studies have shown that this part of the brain doesn't even catch up to our auditory cortex until we are four years old. So parents, wrap your mind around that. Now, due to this longer period of development in this region of the brain, human children exhibit impaired behavioral and cognitive control for years. But really, this makes sense, doesn't it? But extended immaturity of this region beyond what is normal means a longer period of vulnerability and sensitivity to the environment around them. And these deficits are more so when associated with poverty. Late maturity of the prefrontal cortex most definitely has negative consequences for behavior. Another fun fact, studies have found that ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is associated with weaker function and structure of the prefrontal cortex circuits. That's a mouthful, but more so in the right hemisphere and that opens a whole other can of worms that I'll get into in another true crime science. Then we move on to actual damage to the prefrontal cortex. Damage to this region is associated with behavioral abnormalities and executive dysfunctions. And when these injuries happen early in life, such as the case with serial killer Alexander Pachushkin, the symptoms are even more severe because the anatomical and functional areas responsible for personality and behavior are damaged, distorting normal interactions with the psychosocial environment. Injuries suffered in childhood have predictably shown a development in impulsivity, lack of inhibition, and inappropriate behaviors. Using Alexander as an example, he suffered trauma to the front of his head while playing on a swing set. Prior to the accident, he was described as a well-mannered little boy at home and at school, always displayed an outward positive disposition, the whole thing. After the incident, he was more easily distracted, became terribly withdrawn, was more impulsive and actually quite hostile. As he grew older, his behavior became even more difficult, escalating to hostility. He then began drinking heavily and, well, we all know what he went on to become. But generally, damage to this region can affect higher level thinking, behavior, and personality changes. So let's give a little example, right? Every single one of us has, at some point, had thoughts and feelings that we knew would be socially unacceptable. 
we'd never want anyone to actually hear those things, and we certainly would never act on them. But with someone who has a frontal lobe injury or immaturity, they don't have nearly as much impulse control and therefore have a much more difficult time controlling their urges. So then let's go back to the amygdala, right? Now this is kind of an almond-shaped mass of gray matter inside the cerebral hemisphere. It's pretty deep within the underneath, more frontal part of the brain, kind of behind the temple region in here. And even as small as they are, they are incredibly important in helping regulate emotion and encode memories, especially when it comes to emotional memories. So researchers at Emory University have found that direct stimulation of the amygdala via deep brain stimulation can actually enhance a person's recognition of images, which could potentially be treatment for patients with memory-related disorders. So there's that. That's exciting. But it is kind of best known as the part of the brain that drives the so-called fight-or-flight response. It is often associated with the body's fear and stress responses and, again, plays a pivotal role in memory. John T. Willey, MD, PhD, neurosurgeon and director of the Laboratory for Behavioral Neuromodulation at Emory University in Atlanta, that's a mouthful, he said, quote, If you have an emotional experience, the amygdala seems to tag that memory in such a way so that it is better remembered. End quote. And studies have shown time and time again that strong emotions help humans as well as other animals to acquire and attain lasting memories and that the amygdala helps with that effect. And really it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. The amygdala is most often thought of as being a sort of survival oriented brain area. Experiences that have strong emotions associated with them, good or bad, are likely to be the things that allow a species to not only stay alive, but also thrive in its environment. Recent research, though, suggests that the amygdala's role in memory consolidation may go beyond just the emotional aspects of our experiences. Now, Damage or malformation to this area can cause serious problems, such as poor decision-making and impaired emotional memories. See, people tend to choose to avoid losing over acquiring gains, and this behavior is known as loss aversion, right? But people with damage to their amygdala, they are much more likely to take bigger risks with smaller potential gains. Think gambling. The amygdala also has a wide range of connections with other brain regions that participate in a wide range of behavioral functions. Its size most assuredly correlates with aggressive behavior across species. The flow of information through the amygdala circuits is regulated by various neurotransmitter systems involving various chemicals such as, get this, norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. Aha! It also plays a prominent role in mediating many aspects of emotional learning and behavior. Stimulation of the amygdala evokes feelings of anger, violence, anxiety, and fear. It was evolved to help us sense danger in our environment and prepare us to fight 
or run. It also kind of helps to control aggression and again helps us to learn from these emotional settings and it also plays a role in sexual activity and libido. Changes or damage to this region is associated with a wide variety of psychiatric conditions such as various anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, I have all three of those, panic disorders, autism, and schizophrenia. They can also display impairment of the ability to remember faces and interpret facial expressions. Damage can cause the inability to visually recognize surrounding objects or testing out the environment by smelling or chewing things, irresistible need to explore the surrounding area, excessive reactions to visual stimuli, excessive fear and anger, eating abnormal amounts of food when not hungry, and even loss of speech or language. So again, it is a pretty big deal. So to kind of put all of this into perspective, let's give some examples. Charles Whitman, he was a former Boy Scout, was a talented piano player, loved to hunt, kept a paper route, was a model student, and so on. Now his father was an authoritarian who physically and mentally abused his wife and his sons. But Charles was still quite the successful young person until later in high school when things began to go south rather quickly and then he found that he had to have a blood clot removed from one of his testicles. He began drinking heavily, joined the Marines, all until he climbed an observation tower on the University of Texas campus and sniper shot several people, 16 total that day, and that included his wife and his mother. An autopsy revealed that he had a pecan-sized, aggressive, cancerous brain tumor with necrotic, decaying tissue around it, and it was pressing against his amygdala. Henry Lee Lucas, who we all know had a horrific childhood, rife with severe childhood abuse, malnutrition, sexual abuse, and alcoholism. He went on to be convicted of murdering 11 people, though he boasted that that number was much higher. His brain scans did show extreme brain damage to his frontal lobe and hypothalamus, which coordinates the nervous system, activity in the pituitary gland, controlling body temperature, thirst, hunger, sleep, and emotional activity. Arthur Shawcross. He attested to enduring severe physical abuse in his early childhood and suffered a notable head injury from being hit in the head with a large rock that required immediate medical intervention. He suffered another head injury in his later teens, which resulted in a four-day hospital stay. And then there was a third head injury where he was hit with a sledgehammer, fell off of a 40-foot ladder, and landed on his head. Arthur was found to have several brain injuries, including two skull fractures, and while he was in prison, he actually suffered from chronic headaches, and he would often black out. Fred West. He's another who suffered a fractured skull after a motorcycle accident, which left him unconscious for seven days. Then two years later, he fell two floors and suffered another head injury. He actually required a metal plate in his head, coupled with the depraved upbringing that he had and, well, you get a very dangerous individual. 
Richard Ramirez, at only two years old, had a whole dresser fall on top of his head and it nearly killed him. He was knocked unconscious and had a severe gash on his head. Three years later, at five years old, like Alexander, he had an accident with a swing set and received a troubling laceration on his head. Mixed with physical abuse in his childhood, witnessing his cousin murder his wife in front of him, point-blank range, I might add, being exposed to sexual sadism and what else is there to say? They did a brain scan on Joel Rifkin, and it was very apparent that his frontal lobe area was very seriously damaged. Glenn Rogers, as a toddler, would rock back and forth, banging his head violently against hard surfaces. It is said his prefrontal cortex is considered abnormal. David Berkowitz was struck by a car as a child and suffered, quote, unspecified head injuries. End quote. And he would go on to have two more recorded head traumas. But you want to know something that's kind of interesting? Ted Bundy's brain was examined and it showed no evidence of injury or abnormality. But they weren't able to scan him while alive. The examination was done post-mortem. Criminologist Dr. Adrian Rain scanned the brains of over 40 convicted killers and compared them to a control group of quote, ordinary people, and it was obvious that serial killers have lower activity in the prefrontal area of the brain, that part that again controls aggression, concentration, and regulates impulse control. Psychopaths also have malformed or shrunken amygdala, the seat of the brain that controls emotion. So, what's to be done? What is the solution? Dr. Fallon stated in an interview that most people who look at psychopathic killers like Jeffrey Dahmer or Dennis Rader, and they see that they went extended periods of time, years and years between killings, and they think, well, if they can keep from killing during all of that time, why do they start up again? So Dr. Fallon said it's more like having to use the restroom as an example. You can put it off and put it off, but eventually you will have to give in and go. And as crass as it is, that's a very good example. So in volume one, again, we studied kind of nature versus nurture, genetics and environment. And that is two components out of the three that seem to make up the recipe for a psychopathic killer. In this one, volume two, we have discussed how the loss of function in some key areas of the brain that also play a role in creating a psychopathic killer, your conscience, your coding for ethics, morality, and then impulse control. So the question I pose to you, my beloved murder fam is, if there are deficits, malformations, injury to key parts of the brain, combined with early life experiences with severe physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, is there free will? If they are not able to fully control their impulses, aggression, understanding of right and wrong, coupled with horrible childhood experiences, then what do we do with that? It was a question posed by my true crime crush, Dr. James Fallon. And now I am extending that question to you. And let's truly have a discussion, either in the comments below or DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. 
I would really like to hear your philosophical or science-based or just your opinion on what is to be done. So, as always, thank you for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much and have a great day.